Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So, come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas, and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the wisdom of, coming up today, the top philosophy quotes of all time. Okay. Hey, everyone. I hope you're all well. So it turns out that um, it's just going to be me today. All right, then. Let's just jump into things. So on today's The Top Philosophy Quotes of All Time, a little feature we've been doing once a month now for, for a few months, I want to talk about two quotes again. The first one comes from the Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus, and the other one from the French writer and philosopher Albert Camus. Okay, well, so let's begin with uh, Epictetus. Now, where should I start? Well, okay, so you've probably heard the famous Shakespeare quote from Hamlet. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Or if not, you might have heard what uh, John Milton said in Paradise Lost. He said, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Well, I'm not sure if they got this from Epictetus, but of course, he said something very similar, which is the quote I, I want to discuss today. He said, What upsets people is not things themselves, but their judgments about these things. Okay, so what does he mean by this? Well, ultimately, I think what he wants to communicate here is that we're all responsible for our own good or happiness, or, on the other hand, our own misfortune. Or unhappiness. In other words, our well-being is up to us, and our suffering or anxiety is self-inflicted. There is, therefore, no such thing as being the victim. We're all complicit in our negative emotions. Or as Epictetus himself says, when we're frustrated, angry, or unhappy, never hold anyone except ourselves and our judgments accountable. Okay, but what's he saying here exactly? Let's uh, get into some of the details. So, according to Epictetus, it's just not accurate to say that an external event of some kind is bad or disturbing. And that's because whenever someone gets disturbed, 
the real cause of that is their judgment about that event. In other words, events themselves are, well, they're completely value neutral. It's we who impart value, good or bad, to these things through our judgments of them. So, let's consider a couple of examples. One seemingly more benign, the other seemingly more serious. So, let's take the example of having your wallet stolen, and then the separate example of being struck by an inevitable death. Okay, so you discover that someone stole your wallet. That's an event that did happen. It's a fact. But here's the thing. For Epictetus, this itself is not enough to be harmed. No, that's because in order for that to happen, you must believe that you're being harmed by it. That's to say, you must hold the opinion or the judgment that losing some money is harmful or bad or tragic for you. And um, as it turns out, according to Epictetus at least, it's actually not bad for you if you know what's truly valuable in life. But anyway, the point is, is that it's really about how it is we want to interpret what happens to us. That's the key here. In this way, it's in our power to transcend whatever might befall us, right? The same goes for the the seemingly tragic case of dying. I mean, sure, most of us would feel terrible if we discovered we we were going to die due to some illness. But again, we don't have to. And that's because it's not the event the illness itself, that makes it bad. But it's how we interpret matters of life and death. I mean, someone like Socrates is a good example here. He famously wasn't afraid of dying at all, you know, when he was forced to to drink the hemlock. And that's because he had certain beliefs or judgments about what death might be. Anyway, again, the main point that Epictetus is making is that we would spare ourselves a lot of unnecessary pain or anxiety if we could learn to take a moment before reacting to whatever external event befalls us and understand that it's always possible to alter our attitude or judgment towards those events. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, the psychologist Viktor Frankl had a good way of describing what Epictetus was was saying. He said this, he said, that between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies growth and our freedom. Now, there's this space. That's a good way of putting it. There's an open space, this fissure of being, this fissure between events that impinge on us from the external world and our response. In other words, We are not identical to the world, to things. No, there's this layer of mediation between us and the world. There's this freedom we have to reinterpret, to reframe, to reset. It's through this cognitive distancing that we're able to separate our thoughts from external reality and adjust accordingly. Now, all of this is pretty incredible and inspiring, isn't it? I mean, through our power of interpretation, through our power of judgment, we're the ones in control. We're the ones in charge of our emotions. And we're the ones that introduce values onto a world that, like I said, is actually value neutral. And by the way, 
Epictetus knew well how all of this worked. He clearly manifested it in his own life. I mean, he was born a slave and even had to endure a crippled leg. But through all of this, he remained calm and happy and grateful. And so ultimately, our happiness is, well, it's entirely up to us. We can make a heaven out of hell. And that's what Epictetus meant when he said that what upsets people is not things themselves, but their judgments about those things. Okay, well, so this next quote is a bit strange and unknown, I'd say. But I've always liked it, and I think it'd be interesting to to explore. So, like I said at the outset, it comes from Camus. What he said was this. He said, I do not believe in God, and I'm not an atheist. Now, that sounds like a bit of a paradox, doesn't it? He doesn't believe in God, but he's not an atheist. So, what's going on here? Well, I think he might mean at least two different things by it. So, well, we know that he doesn't believe in God. But when he says he's not an atheist, I think he might first be referring to what he sees as the sacrality of human beings, and second, to what amounts, on his part, to a kind of pantheistic view of the world. So, let's briefly take each in turn. Okay, so for Camus, I think it's pretty clear that all human life is sacred. It's for this reason that he rejects the legitimacy of any and all political violence. I mean, think about it. If we believe it's just or right to to commit murder in the name of an ideal, no matter how seemingly noble it might be, then we believe that the ideal is somehow greater than the human life that we violate. Or so says Camus. You see, for Camus, the end simply never justifies the means. There's never a future goal that justifies immorality. Nothing is worth human suffering. The bottom line is that he believed in the complete value of human life. In other words, there's something sacred about human beings, about human life. Actually, in a very real sense, you might say that human sacrality stands beyond or above any moral system. Which sounds weird, right? Because you might think that human sacredness and morality basically amount to the same thing. But no, not for Camus. You see, Camus thought that the problem with morality is that it leads to abstractions, and from there, it's an easy road to injustice. In other words, you can pretty much always justify anything philosophically, the most atrocious of acts even. So, it's for this reason, as Camus himself said, that he's abandoned the moral point of view. Instead, He's going to stick with the concrete individual in all of their sacrality and stay away from moral systems and formulations. So, in other words, part of what Camus means by the sacred is real personal love and respect. It's responding to someone as the particular person that they are with love and compassion and not abstractly. So, this is one way in which while there's no God in the picture here, 
there nevertheless still is a sense of love and respect for human dignity that you could argue approximates something divine-like. Okay, so, well, the second thing I wanted to talk about was Camus' sort of pantheistic view of the world, which again is why I think you could make sense of him saying that he's not an atheist even though he doesn't believe in God. Okay, so how do I start this? Well, okay, so for Camus, there's clearly no afterlife. And there's no ultimate meaning to to anything. But nevertheless, he still does think that a special divine-like communion with the world is possible. Now, maybe one way of expressing this difference is to make a, a distinction between what we could call vertical transcendence on the one hand and um, horizontal transcendence on the other. So, vertical transcendence is essentially a Christian or some kind of otherworldly transcendence. It implies there's more to this world and this life, something that stands outside of it. On the other hand, horizontal transcendence, well, that's a transcendence that's not otherworldly, but it's entirely thisworldly, and it has to do with the sacrality of life itself. Okay, well, to put it bluntly, Camus rejects vertical transcendence. There's no doubt about that. But he does seem to affirm something like a horizontal transcendence. I mean, we should remember that Camus spent his youth in Algeria, and so with its breathtaking, unspoiled Mediterranean landscapes, where, as he said, you can feel a kinship with the world and where the throbbing of one's blood mingles with the violent pulsations of the afternoon sun. Now, that's the sort of thing that he means by horizontal transcendence. In other words, what Camus describes doesn't appeal to anything outside of the world. It appeals exactly to this world, with all its beauty and power. So, for Camus, true spirituality, if you want to call it that, is embodied It's born of the connection between our physical bodies and this physical world, with its stones and its stars. As he says in one of his novels, he says, The body has a soul in which the soul has no part. So, I think that what Camus is doing is that in his rejection of vertical or Christian transcendence, he's actually returning to a vision of the world that's much older. That's to say, he's returning to or reviving a kind of pagan or pantheistic communion with the world. One which celebrates the sacrality of life itself. One which sees the gods speaking in the sun. One where, as he himself says, he can open his eyes and his heart to the unbearable grandeur of this heat-soaked sky. Again, it's hard not to see this earthy, physical and passionate outlook as a clear corruption of Christian otherworldly transcendence. And so this is how it's possible to not believe in God, but also not to be an atheist.
listening to The Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. 